Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We love it. We cherish it. And we ask, God, that your spirit would speak to us through it. We invite your Holy Spirit to be here with us, to show us things that aren't even in our text, but to minister to us wherever we're at. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Luke chapter 11. We, we've been in Luke for a while, I think since August, so we're, we're coming up on a year, and we're not even halfway done. Um, and uh, I'm not helping it any by uh, going through the Lord's Prayer, this study, and then getting to Father last week. Um, so we're, we're going to go through uh, Hallowed Be Your Name this week. Yeah, we're going fast. So... But the, I'm just, I, I, I did feel compelled to take it slow, uh, particular, particularly here, because I, I already covered the Lord's Prayer in Matthew a couple years ago, and we just kind of looked at that entire prayer on a, a quick snapshot. And so now I, I just want to take it a little slower, especially with in regards to prayer, that we could even look at this as a separate series within the book of Luke, that this would be a prayer series. And so... Looking at this a little closer, also because of Mary and Martha's story about how Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him while Martha was kind of busy, and so just kind of getting convicted also from that, and also from the Lord showing me as well as our elders and people from our staff that what what things are we doing in ministry that are out of our flesh, that aren't out of the Spirit, and that we need to slow down and press the pause button and just ask God, God, we're going to sit at your feet and we're going to wait for you and direct us as to what is out of our flesh and what is of your spirit. And regardless of how difficult those decisions are of what we're going to have to cut or what we're going to have to add or keep or whatever, that we're going to be obedient to that. So let's start. We're in Luke chapter 11. We're going to do verses 1 and 2 and a half. And so here we are, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, I don't think this one disciple was the only one hoping to learn how to pray from Jesus. I think probably all 12 of them were, and I think the other 11 were probably really relieved that this guy asked. Right? It's just kind of like you in your classrooms where you have this question that you would love to ask your professor or teacher, but you're kind of withholding because you don't want to show that you're like the one that doesn't know when all of you don't know. And so when one of them asks, you're like, whew, I'm glad that guy asked that question. I, I had the same question. So you notice that the disciple asking Jesus to teach them knew that all of what all of them needed to learn. This is, this is a great question. He says, Lord, teach us to pray. Because if it was just him that had the question, he probably would have said, Lord, teach me to pray. Right? So he, he either recognized that all of them needed a lesson on how to pray, or they kind of all conspired together and like, all right, draw straws. Whoever draws this one, he's asking. And whoever asks, say us. It's all of us. It's not just you. We all need. So I don't know how they did it, but this is how they did it. So whoever asks, recognize that it wasn't just him. Because he uses the plural form. Right? He says us. And so maybe... Um, this is you, that you don't have this uh, courage to ask this question of God because you're ashamed or you're, you're thinking, I've been a Christian a long time, I should already know this. I don't. Just ask him. Ask him. There's no shame in asking him. And so uh, here we are in verse 2, and he said to them, when you pray, say, which is a lot different from Matthew, right? Matthew, it says, pray like this. Luke's gospel account says, say this. So 
I think we're to say these things. And the first thing he says is Father. So Jesus started out by teaching them to say Father. And if you missed that teaching, you can listen to it last week. Uh, But just a little short overview. Father, right? A sign of intimacy. A close relationship. A sign that God is your spiritual Father and through faith in His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, can you only have this intimate relationship with the Father. So when we believe in Jesus, we're we're adopted into God's family, which we do not belong to by nature, because we have a sin nature. And so we we don't have this correct view of God the Father oftentimes because of our own backgrounds with our earthly fathers. But this prayer, as well as other prayers, they're trying to have a different meaning between earthly father and a spiritual father, God the Father. right? And it's paramount that we have this recognition of God as Father, that we can see Him this way. Otherwise... Everything we pray is of no spiritual significance because only God's children have his inheritance of everlasting life with him. Only his children. So you kind of have to see him as father. And last week we took a quick look at Romans chapter 8 verse 15. And I want to take a quick look at that again. And it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. Father, the Spirit of God shows our spirit that we are God's child. And what we were not in the past, uh, we, we weren't a child of God, we receive by grace. There's this spiritual transaction that takes place between God and a person that, that is transformational, that is everlasting. And where the Spirit of God takes residence in, in, in our life, one has to come into trusting Him. And then we become a child of God. When we come to worship, when we come to study the scriptures, when we come to meditate on the things of God, we come to realize that God has indeed adopted us as a child of his. It is only those who have come in faith and in repentance to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior who are children of God. Because he is the only way. So the first question to ask when we're looking at this prayer is, is God your Father? Is God your Father? Does, this, does the Spirit of God communicate with you in times of prayer, in times of worship, in times of study, in times of trouble, when you, when you definitely need the assurance from the Spirit that your relationship with Him is real? Is there evidence that the Spirit of God is real in your life? In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive Him who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Are you a child of God? It says, but to all who did receive Him. Is God your Father? And so that's the first thing for us to address. And now we get to this next part of the prayer that we're going to look at today. And He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now, how often do we use that word hollowed? It's just, it's just not something that we use that often, right? And it's a, it's a pretty significant word, considering it's the second word Jesus tells us to say after Father. And I think using it is contingent on having this really intimate relationship with God to the extent that we can call Him Father. And what's in a name? Psalm chapter 138, verse 2. 
says this, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Hallowed be your name. God's name. And God has exalted above all things his name, his word. God's word tells us the character of his name. And it's in the importance of his name that we value God's word. What makes God's name important? It's, it's because his name represents God himself. Right? His very character, his very essence. In thinking of God, we can't separate him from his name because his name signifies who he is. Right? It's his very nature. It's his very character. That's his name. And so the Lord's name tells us a lot about him. And that's why when you look, at, look back at the Bible, there are many names for God, right? Jehovah Jireh, right? The Lord will provide. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer. Jehovah Rohi, the Lord my shepherd. Have you guys ever wondered, why did that orphanage call its name Rohi? It's just a funny name. Is that an African word? Is that a Swahili word? No, they pulled it out of the Bible. That orphanage, that school, that rescue center that we support, that we've supported for eight years, this is how they came up with their name. The Lord is my shepherd, Rohi. So this, the, God presents us by names. And it's not that he has some um, like multiple personality disorder or something like that. Like, hmm, who am I going to be today? It's not like that. It's that he is all these things to us and a single name can't tell us what it is or what he is. So he has all these different names. Why do you think God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14? He said to him, well, when they were asking, well, who should I tell him sent me? And he says, I am who I am. Why did he say that? It's not to play with Moses' head like, what? I am who I am. I get that. It's not that. It's because you can't define God. So I am whatever you need. I am, you know, whatever you fill in the blank that I am him. And so for us in America, we tend to use names just to tell each other apart. And we use names as identifiers of a particular person. That's how we typically use names. And we like naming things. It's, and it's not just people, but everything, right, in college. In college, we, we, I worked for this uh, short-term ministry organization, and we had a fleet of cars. They all had names. We named all of them, right? And, and we, we had a big truck. We named him Dooley because, you know, he had dual things. And we had this big cargo truck named Lobo, which I, I don't understand why we named him Lobo because Lobo means wolf in Spanish. Wolves aren't big. I don't know why we named I had my own personal car. It was a 75 Toyota Corolla station wagon. Deluxe, by the way. And um, it, the name was Banana Boat. It's, I, we just like naming things. We named our dog Joey. And it's, it's nothing really... I, I guess it is significant. Katie used to live in Spain. And so whenever I visited her, I would call Joey. Joey was like my cab driver. And so he would drive me from the airport to the house. And so he was kind of significant because he would always pick me up. And he's always on time. He drives really fast. And so when, when we got a dog, I was like, we should name him Joey. Because, you know, Joey was so significant. And they're, they kind of look alike. Like, <laughs> like, Joey's really good looking and he's blonde, you know. And he really likes water and he really likes food. He likes going fast. And let's name him Joey. And so he, we named him Joey. But usually... When we call someone or something by name, we're not thinking of that person's or thing's nature or character. 
right? Because Joey means from Joseph, derived from Joseph, God will increase. I did not name Joey for that. God will increase. If I did, I wouldn't have neutered him, right? So, <laughs> it's, so uh, if we really named Joey for that nature, I, you know, I would have kept them. Like, increase, Joey, increase. But, but we named him after a cab driver. We just, you know, and it's just the way for us to identify him and, and for us to call him at Point Isabel or, you know, to, to like, hey, or from the vet to dif- differentiate him from other things. So, so in other cultures, names mean a little bit more than just an identifier, like in China. Right? In China, have you noticed that, that Chinese people like to name their dogs Lucky? Bobo? You know what Bobo? Because Bobo in Chinese means like more, like increase, right? So they, they, like, they, they like naming them fortune or wealth or happy and, and it's like the Chinese word equivalent of those things, but they like naming those things because it's, it's those meanings. The names have a meaning. It's not Joey, right? So, so they like that. And so that's different than in our American culture. And so that's something to keep in mind because this is an Eastern culture that we're talking about. It's closer to that than it is our Westernized culture. And it's the same thing with people's names, right? We tend to name children by what sounds nice to us before the meaning, just like we did. Right, we just kind of looked at different names and we're like, oh, we like that. It goes well with our, our last name. My last name is really hard to name kids. It easily changes things to adverbs, right? Because it's Lee. So I, there's a lot of, I can't name a kid Brock. Like, you know, that's weird. So, <laughs> so the meaning is typically secondary, right? It's, it's secondary. So, so take, for example, Dorcas. Who's going to name our kid Dorcas? Like, if you named your kid, or if you're named that, I'm not, I'm not teasing you. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Because it means gazelle, right? So it means, like, you're, you're light on your feet, you're, you're pretty, you have big eyes. You know, you read Song of Solomon. We're not going to go in that because it's kind of X-rated. But, you know, it means beautiful. And it, sounds, it sounds very nice in that culture. In our culture, Dorcas doesn't sound so nice. Dorcas sounds like... Something else, too. So it just, you know, we, we, you don't name your kid that unless you want your kid to be teased. So you just don't do that. So it's different for cultures in Asia or Africa. I'll use the Chinese again just because I am, and I can tease us because I am one. So um, I'm in constant debate with my mom about my children's Chinese names. You're right? She wants to name them... After beauty or grace or, or some type of meaning, right? Something pertaining what she hopes to be in their nature or in their character. That's what she wants to... I want something more sentimental, right? I want something more sentimental that uh, is closer to like my grandmother's names. I wanted to combine my grandmother's names and stuff like that and, and make it... But then um, I had to rethink it because she told me what their names were and they just sound awful. They just sound really awful. And so see how shallow we are or I am? Yeah, I'm Western. I'm like, ooh, that sounds gross. I don't want that name. So, it's it, so, and you know, it's not just me because it's like you too, right? You you do this too. So, there's this cultural shift in America in regards to names because it hasn't always been like this, right? I, and I'm not sure when this shift happened, but when I was growing up, and I'm pretty sure it was every generation before me, an adult was called by a child by their last name preceded by Mister, Miss, or Missus. That's, that's how it was. Same thing for your coach. You called them coach whatever. 
right? You, you, you just, or, or, or other offices like a pastor or officer or, or whatever. But at our dinner, we never called someone by their name. We never called them by their first name when I was growing up. It, it just never happened. When it happened, you're like, ooh, who's that? And you, and you kind of wondered. And, and I wonder if the reverence for God's name is lost upon us because we've lost respect for names and people of authority. That we, we've just lost it, so it's easy to lose the translation as you're moving upward towards God. I wonder. See, there, there's one place where I haven't seen it lost, and that's in the courtroom. I've been in court, because supporting various people in the church, yes, I'm talking to you, no. Um, that's where one place I always hear your honor, or judge, or, you know, not so much in other settings, but in that setting... I usually hear it because you know your place. You know exactly where you stand. You know that the judge has the ability to judge you. So you, you hold that in, in reverence. In other things, not so much. We're, we're kind of confident where we're at. We, we lose the authority thing like, ah, it's just my mom. Ah, it's just my dad. It's just Fred. It's just Joanne, whatever, you know. And something I notice about kids in our martial arts ministry is that the kids there don't have any problem with respecting authority and respecting adults. They don't. It's ingrained in them. That's how we run our classes. That's, that's, we said it like that. We said it that they respond to authority. And I really didn't notice it until our children's ministry director, Christina, she mentioned how good our kids were in class. That this really surprised her. Once a month, she'll, she'll go over there. She'll hang out with the kids. They'll eat together. They'll work on projects together. They'll do Bible lessons. And, and she shared with me how well they listened, how well they participated, how well they behaved. And they, it's not a surprise to me. They are taught this in class. They are taught this. And so it transitions well into this next activity. It transitions well into other everyday life. So that respective parents, the first verse that they memorize is children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1. That's the first verse they memorize. And so we, we just don't let students there call us by first name. Hey Albert, I don't know who they are. I have no idea who they are. None of our instructors allow them to call them by first name. And it's not like we're just like, we're too mighty for you to call us by first name. We're trying to teach them something. We're not lording over them and being tyrants and saying, you have to. But we want to show them how to address people with respect. How to address people knowing kind of the authority there. And addressing them by first name basis, there's a breakdown of respect. And maybe you don't think so in westernized culture, but if you look at any other culture, in eastern culture or African culture... That's very disrespectful. Because we're not peers. We're not peers. So I think one of the reasons there's a loss of respect in our culture is, in authority specifically, is because we've lost the meaning of names. Everyone's the same. Joe's the same as Fred, the same as Mike, the same as Peter, the same as whatever, regardless of your position. And so we're people of authority, we're just kind of pals and we're just kind of peers. And some may argue that we're all the same regardless of position, age, experience, responsibility. But perhaps that's a sign of the very problem of why we have this breakdown of respect for authority in our society. Because we think that way. Maybe. 
So when a child calls their parents by their first name or when, when people speak to authority figures so casually where respect is lost, I don't think it's too far to think that we've become so casual and irreverent with God and His name. I don't think that's that far of a jump. Hallowed be your name. This is God. Hallowed be your name. When God says to Moses, I am who I am, it was because there isn't a single name to characterize God. We can't. He is who He is. Right? And in regards to all the other gods that God, uh, you know, the God of Moses is addressing, their names in contrast, as He is saying, I am who I am, He's basically saying that they are not. These guys are not. I am. So while God is I am, God is essentially telling every other God, small g, that they are not. And all those Egyptian plagues, I don't know if you've noticed this, but all these Egyptian plagues that God sent to Pharaoh, they had a God attached to them. And he's playing with them. And God was showing Pharaoh that, you know, those frogs, flies, locusts, not gods. They are not. Right? So I am who I am. Everything else was created, not God. God sustains the entire universe. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need to gain anything. He doesn't need to lose anything. He is eternal. He is perfect. Hallowed be your name. What does it mean for us to understand God's name? Well, let's start by looking at the third commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. And it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The Jews knew God's name to be YWHW. Right? So no vowels because the very name of God was not to be spoken. It was not to be pronounced. And that's, you know, that's something that Prince was trying to do. You know, he's just a little symbol thing. But. but a Jew would not utter the name of God. And it was just an impossibility. The vowels were were not there. Vowels were later added, and we come up with the name Yahweh. But this was treated with great reverence, with great respect, with great honor. When we go to Israel in June of 2012, we will go to a place called Qumran. Qumran is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found by the shepherd boy who was trying to identify a safe place to put his sheep. So he's throwing rocks in there to make sure there's no like uh, wild animals that can kill the sheep in there. So he's throwing and he breaks a jar. And so he hears this and so that's, that's where we find the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so we're, we're going to go here and at this site is where the Essenes were. The Essenes were a Jewish sect. And they wrote the Hebrew Bible, not the original, but they, they, they transcribed the Bible, and they, they did this. They had these long, long tables, because they used to be scrolls. So they had these long tables, and they would just kind of write along. And so here we have the Hebrew Bible, and we have the oldest copies of the Old Testament Bible. And the entire book of Isaiah... The difference between the ancient manuscript that they wrote thousands of years ago and the Bible that's right in front of you, you know what the difference is? Nothing. Exactly the same. And so when, when people are saying, oh, the Bible's not uh, accurate and it's not... They have no clue what they're talking about. I don't have time to go into all the proof at this service. Maybe we'll do it at another time. Maybe we'll do it on site at Qumran. 
you don't know what you're talking about if you don't say the Bible's not accurate or that it's not. It is trans, transcribed word for word from that ancient manuscript into what we have today. And so at that ancient site, we're also going to see these things called mikvah baths. Now, mikvah baths are, are kind of like these pools, and it's, you know, a, a jacuzzi. And um, every, time, every time any scene came across the name of God, writing on that scroll, they would get up, they would put that writing utensil down, they would, they would bathe himself in the jacuzzi, in the mikvah bath, and why? Purify themselves. They would purify themselves, and then they would go back to writing. You see the reverence for God's name that they had. They had to put everything down. They had to cleanse themselves they had to, before they would go back. Every time. How many times is the name of God in the Bible? Those were some clean dudes. Every time. And so you keep in mind also that this is in the middle of the desert. This isn't like in a lake. The Dead Sea's nearby, but I don't think you want to bathe in the Dead Sea. We'll go there too, and you'll go there, and you'll know. You're like, yeah, this is, you'll feel like a worm. But anyway... This is fresh water in the middle of the desert. Such a valuable resource in the middle of the desert, and you're using it to bathe yourself. Not drink to where you keep yourself alive. Bathe. Do you see how important God's name was to them? They took this incredibly valuable resource, and they bathed, they purified themselves with this. So you see how much reverence for God's name these guys had. How much reverence do we have for the name of God? How do we use God's name today? And sometimes we use it in cussing, in anger, in frustration. And those are some of the more obvious ones. I want to talk about the less obvious ones because I think a lot of you know those obvious ones. The less obvious ones. How about when a person says, the Lord told me? Have you guys heard this one? I hear this one a lot working with pastors. It's actually quite irritating. Because we have to be careful about saying this because I've seen a lot of damage done using this phrase and I've seen it abused by Christians who claim that the Lord told them when in actuality they're using the Lord's name in vain. The Lord did not tell them. And I've heard people tell me, you know, the Lord told me when it's not the Lord who told you to marry or not marry a person, right? Or to take this job or not take this job or to move here or not to move here or to say something or not to say something. And unless the Lord did tell you through his word, his Bible, the Bible we have, we have to be very careful with saying the Lord told me. Really careful. The things that he has told us in the Bible, you can be confident of because it's right there. right? So the promises that he's told you, you can hold true to those things. And he's told you those things. But when you say, the Lord told me, and it's not in the Bible, you better double check. You better triple check that otherwise you may fail into using the Lord's name in vain. You might fail in respecting and revering and upholding God's hallowed name. Because unlike God's word, we are fallible people. 
God's word is infallible, we're fallible, we're imperfect beings who may be wrong about God's will in our life and making wrong choices in our life. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but at the present we can, we can make mistakes. In real time we can make mistakes and we have to be really careful about so easily invoking God's name into our matter, so flippantly saying, the Lord told me. And I know some guys who just say this all the time to justify whatever they're doing. And they just say it so easily and so whatever. Like the Lord told me this and the Lord told me that. And I just have to wonder if that is what the Lord really told them because I don't see the fruit of what when the Lord tells them these things. I actually see a lack of fruit. Right? So Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Because I think this is some of the fruit that we're looking for right here. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If the Lord really told you those things, then why is there such a lack of those things? That makes no sense. So maybe He didn't tell you and you're lying. You're lying about that so that you can influence someone. So that you can persuade someone, convince someone, impress someone. Oh, the Lord spoke to me and the Lord told me this. And you're trying to convince them of something that you're saying or that you're trying to do when God really didn't tell you those things. That you really don't have any credibility and the way that you're backing it up is just saying, oh, the Lord told me. That's just a form of manipulation. You're just trying to manipulate the situation, manipulate what you're trying to do, saying the Lord told me, and really no one can see that, but really we're to evaluate fruit. So, you know, if those people are doing these things that are lacking in goodness, that are lacking in kindness, that are lacking in self-control, that are lacking in gentleness, that are lacking in patience, joy, peace, and if they're just kind of doing it, the Lord told me, probably not. Maybe not. Now, those people that have told me time and time again, the Lord told me to tell you. I've I've heard that one too. The Lord told me to tell you. And for me, I want to respond by just saying, just be glad you don't live in Old Testament times because if that were wrong, you would be stoned. You would be killed. Right? As a false prophet, you would be stoned. I don't mean by drugs. Stones, right? Stones. So, frankly, some of those guys, sometimes I do think that they're stoned. But anyway, (laughs) stop lying. The Lord told you to tell me? Don't you think that He'd just tell me? Why is He using you? Like, you're an expensive broker. Like, He'd just tell me, I think. Now, recall the story of Isaac, Esau, and Jacob in Genesis chapter 27. I think this is a beautiful representation of using the Lord's name in vain. It's in Genesis 27. Isaac was going to give Esau his birthright because he didn't know how long he was going to live before he'd die. He's losing his sight. He's kind of losing his faculties here. But before he did, so he he asked Esau to go out and hunt uh, for some meat to prepare some good food for his dad. He wanted him to get some good fresh meat for his dad. So Rebecca, his wife, Jacob's mom, hears this, and so he, she goes over to Jacob, and she, she preps Jacob, saying, like, hey, Esau's going out for a hunt. Kind of pretend to be your brother, and then you'll get the birthright. And so let's read the story in Genesis chapter 27. It's 20 verses, so just bear with me. 
When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love. And bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a metrosexual, smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, Esau was one hairy dude. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Liar. I have done as you have told me. Liar. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, here's the key, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Hmm. Did you catch that? Jacob answered his father, Because the Lord your God granted me success. He didn't hallow the name of the Lord. He lied, he abused, he manipulated, he was trying to gain credibility that he didn't have. He used the Lord's name in vain to try to convince and to persuade his father in believing him. So be careful when you're saying, the Lord told me, or the Lord did this for me, or all this stuff. Don't name drop the Lord. That's one name you don't want to name drop. right? So, so if he's not really in it, then you don't say it. Or if you don't know, don't say it. Sometimes we try to justify what we say and what we do by throwing God's name into the mix when we're really doing something that is not hallowing the Lord's name. We just kind of throw it in there to try to justify what we're doing or what we're saying. Another example of misusing our words is in Mark chapter 7. And a little background here. It was customary, as it is for many cultures in our present day, for the son to take care of their elderly parents. It's a customary thing. So in Mark chapter 7, verses 8 through 15, Jesus comes across this Pharisee and he confronts them on this issue of not following the ways of God, but following rather in their own traditions. Let me read this for you, verses 8 through 15. You leave the commandment of God and hold the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. 
For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that is going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. What happened here? This son has money to take care of his parents. Right? His parents who are in need, but he doesn't want to use his resources to take care of his parents. He wants to keep it for himself. So what does he do? He looks into their traditions and he's, and he's looking for a way to kind of skirt the issue, this loophole of how to get away with this. How am I going to get away with this so that I don't have to take care of my parents because they're so expensive? And I, and I want this for myself. I want, I want that stuff. Right? I want, I want stuff for me. So he stamps his financial resources as Corbin. Meaning, given to God or dedicated to God. That this stuff is dedicated to God. So he takes his financial resources, stamps it, given to God. Now once something is determined to be Corbin, there's no way to take that back to use for something else. So what did he do? He took that money from mom and dad. This is Corbin. I can't use it for this. i got to use it for things of God. i got to use it for myself so that I can keep going and serve God. I'm a Pharisee, so I can keep studying and so I can keep going. I can get more schooling and, and get fancy clothes or whatever. And so mom and dad, they're out. They're in need, but they're out. The stuff is Corbin. You see what the Pharisee did? Using God's name in vain? I'm giving this to God. That's why I can't give it to you. He used the name of God to work around doing things, to find this loophole of what God was really guiding him to do, which was to take care of his parents who are in need because of their age. That's a biblical principle. And he did not hallow the Lord's name. And so we can so easily fall into this sort of thing, can't we? That we just kind of flippantly use the Lord's name to justify or try to manipulate or try to do whatever, saying, like, the Lord told me, the Lord told me, the Lord told me. When He didn't. That's you. Let me share with you one more example about not hallowing the Lord's name. This one is in regards to our worship service. And sometimes we forget that the worship is for God. Right? It's not for us. And sometimes we forget that it's to glorify God. It's not for our glorification. Hallowed be your name, not our name, right? Yet we sometimes want to worship that is pleasing to us. That, oh, I don't know those songs. Or that song doesn't sound good to me. Or, or whatever. Rather than focus on pleasing God. Now how different would some of our attitudes be towards worship if we were focused more on hallowing God's name? More than how something affected us or, or you know, how it moved us or something. Not to say that those things aren't important. What I'm saying is those things are secondary. That we need to hallow God's name. That's the primary thing. And whether we're satisfied with worship is less important than whether God is satisfied with our worship. 
So is God glorified in our worship? In worship this morning, what, what was running through your head during worship? Were you more concerned with how good it was for you or how good it was for God? Right? Were, you, were you more concerned about the worship song that, that it wasn't more catered to you? Or were you listening to the words and, and seeing how it was for God? Were you more concerned about how this preaching is going for you? How this, how this is not affecting me. This is whatever. This is not, it's not touching me. I, I'm just. Or are you more concerned about getting God's word out? That we're getting God's word out. That he's, he's speaking through his word. What about other parts of the worship service? Whether it be communion or prayer or giving or fellowship or whatever it is. Is it more about you or is it about God? So how different would our worship service be if we were all truly focused on hallowing God's name? That's what we are focused on. Hallowing God's name. And sure, we need to put a strong effort into worship service for both God and people. But let's get the priorities straight. God first. It's for Him. That's why we're meeting here. Right? So how many of our complaints would, would subside if, if we were to focus on hallowing God's name? And rather than looking at methods or styles or expressions, uh, what if you, if this pertains to you, focused on hallowing the Lord's name? And maybe that would help some of you who kind of hop from church to church looking for something that is, that's good for you when it's not necessarily worshipful to God. Because is it worship to God? That's the first thing. Even if this church really speaks to you and it's relevant to you and, and everything's going well for you, you have to ask the question, is this worship to God? And if it's not, I, you have to leave. You have to go somewhere else. And it's not just this church, but any church. If you go in there and it's just kind of like, oh, it's just the cool hip thing. And they sing songs, but it's not really worship to God. And they give a sermon, but it's not really a sermon for God. Like, what is it for? How it fits us is secondarily. How it worships God is the primary thing. So without it being worshiped to God, there is no second. Right? If it's not worshiped to God, God is the focus of our worship. If that's not there, there is no second thing. You might as well just join a club. So are you able to worship outside of what you're used to? We're not a liturgical church. But as a Christian, as someone focused on worshiping God, not what's good for you, could you go into a liturgical service and worship God? Is that possible? Right? Because that's the priority. So, we're not a formal church. Right? I'm not wearing a tie, I'm not whatever. And can you worship God in a place where it's all suits? They might take you, but can you go in there and, you know? But so, so there are these churches that use different songs. There's a church I've been to that only uses psalms, no instruments. They believe anything outside of that is a sin. It's just psalms. Can you worship in that? Because it's worshiping God. It's cool. I could do it. Can you go into a place where they still wear head coverings? Women are on one side and guys are on this side. I've been to those too. It's really strange to me. But can you do it? And they hand out doilies. It's like, isn't that for a cup? Why is that on your head? And so, 
Um, anyway, so, you know, it, the focus is on worshiping God, right? The focus is on worshiping God, not kind of like how these different things fit us. And so if, if there was this church that held a different stance on various parts of theology, but they're not heretical, they're different. The theology is different. But it's not to say like Jesus is not Lord or that he wasn't, but there's different parts of it that are different, but it doesn't mean that we're not all Christians. Could you worship in that church? Some people can't. Because they believe that the dividing line is that big. And I don't think it is. I think some of the things that we make such a big deal out of, they're not that big. That we major in the minors. Right? And so and it's, it's like we should major in the majors. The big things. Is Jesus God? And there's, there's other big things too. I mean that's one extreme. right? And there's other things that are less. But sometimes we get so fine down the line... That we're not even united anymore. And then you, we create these divisions of things. And, and it, it's not to be like that. And there are some I've noticed who don't do anything during a worship service. That You don't sing. You're emotionless. You're just sitting there. And you're just stuck in your head thinking about who knows what. About maybe overanalyzing the words or overanalyzing what people are saying. And you can get excited about other things though, right? Like going to an A's and Mariners game. But what about hallowing God's name? Worshippers of God's they don't go to a worship service to solely observe. They go to worship. Worshippers of God go to a worship service to worship. They praise God. Right? So you can't even be a child of God if you can't praise God. So I'm not saying that you have to get up and get all crazy and singing and dancing. If you want to do that, that that's cool. It doesn't bother me at all. But show some life. Sometimes people are just sitting there looking like they had a lobotomy done or something. Just like nothing. I, it just makes me wonder, like, are you alive? Come on. You can't just sit there. Drink. It's saying he saved you. Like, are you kidding me? You have everlasting life? Are you kidding me? That is weird. From my perspective, it's really weird. I bet when Elaine does that and someone's just there, she's like... You know, it's just that they're weird. And, And you have to kind of wonder, is God real in that person's heart? Or are they just stuck here? They're just stuck in their head, overanalyzing stuff. Like, do you feel God? He's an emotional God. And I, I don't want to go on either extreme of that either. Like, don't go overly heady or don't go overly, what do you call it, hardy? Um, you know, it's something in between. It's not all emotion, but it's not all head. And so, you know, you're a child of God. And to be comatose there, sitting as though nothing happened, you, you've got issues. You've got issues with God. And maybe some of you are like, oh, I'm just wired that way. I didn't even do that in my child's birth. Like, I was just like, whatever. Are you kidding me? You're weird. We need a counseling session. Your child was born. I mean, come on. Or like at the marriage. Oh, that's just how I am. When we got married, I just, you know, just went up there. Just didn't bother me. No smile, no, no tear, no nothing. I'm sure your wife is so happy in your marriage. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, there's spiritual activity as a child of God. It's not just mental activity. There's spiritual activity. And sometimes we fool ourselves as to why we're here. Are we here to debate? Are we here to argue with one another? We are here to worship God. Are we here to fight about things? And sometimes we don't come to worship service to worship God. We come here for whatever other reason there is. You name it. For I'm lonely and I want friends. Or, or whatever. Whatever the reason may be. We come to worship God. And sometimes we come with this impure heart. With this agenda that is not His. It's not God's agenda as to why we're here. And that's just a bad way to come to worship the Lord. Worship is for God. It's not how much we like something how did God like something? Right? Was his name hallowed? Was God present? Are we presenting God in our image or his image, our image? We're just making God what we want him to be. And after we share the gospel and, and people accept Jesus as their Lord, are we focused on discipling people into being worshipers of God or something else? Because this is key. Because sometimes when we bring people to the Lord, we want to make sure that their laundry list of wrongs is righted. Right? Like, oh, you smoke? Bad. You drink? Oh. You drugs? Oh. You sleeping around? Oh. Living with boyfriend, girlfriend? Well. And we go through this whole checklist of all this stuff. Yes, that's part of worshiping the Lord in terms of your transformation of that stuff. But it's not to go there first. Right? We don't go on that checklist first. I mean... How would you feel like that? Put yourself in that person's shoes. You know you're messed up. That's why you came to accept the Lord in the first place. And then you're just slapped across the face saying like, Oh, and by the way, love them. Love them. Let, let God convict them of those things and show them, teach them. Yeah, those things are, are not in the Bible. Yeah, fornication is a sin. Different things are sin. Yes, it's true. But you don't slap them up the head with all that stuff. John chapter 4, verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Are we teaching, discipling people to be worshipers? Or are we wanting them for behavior modification? Are we just trying to modify their behavior? Or are we turning them into worshipers of God? Their spirit, their heart. Or are we just changing the externals of their life? Because that's really shallow. Because if we don't change their heart and they stop doing those things, then what good is it? What are we really focused on? How do we really know that you are a child of God? You worship Him. It's not that you stop smoking. That you stop drinking. That you stop taking drugs. That's not what makes you a worshiper of God. Psalm chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. 
He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Psalm 51, verses 15 through 17. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. You hear this. It's not the stuff that you're doing and your behavior modifications, right? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Focus on what is really a worshiper of God. Or are you a bystander? Are you just observing, just kind of like this, just taking it all in, but it's not touching your heart? Are you worshiping? Are we worshiping? Is God glorified in our worship? Hallowed be his name. Let's let's pray. Father, hallowed be your name. And we pray forgiveness for any way that we've misrepresented you as a church. Lord, be with us as we so often flippantly just use your name in vain. And there are some obvious things like cussing or doing things out of anger or frustration, but those kind of not so easily identifiable things when we say things like, the Lord told me, when you actually really didn't. So God, I pray that you would work in our hearts that we have a reverence and a respect for your name, that we recognize how great you are, And Lord, I pray for anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with you, Jesus, that they can get that first part taken care of in calling you Father. And that's only done by accepting your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone here who who hasn't done that, and I pray for their heart and their minds to be softened to accept you, Lord Jesus, into their heart. In Jesus' name, amen.